Hello, and welcome to another Growth Masters Federal Podcast. Today's discussion is the second in our two-part series on the final two phases of business development in the federal sector, capture management and writing winning proposals. Growth Masters Federal is a nationwide community of growth-oriented government contractors, their owners and executive teams, and the professionals who support them. The purpose is to share experiences and discuss timely topics on planning and executing the most effective growth strategies in the complex, highly regulated, but opportunity-rich federal marketplace. Your host is Shirley Collier, president and founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think, plan, collaborate, and prosper in the federal marketplace by developing and executing comprehensive data-driven business development playbooks. Writing proposals is a combination of art, science, research, and communication skills. Priority number one is compliance. Compliance in format, length, structure, content, presentation, and submission. If your proposal is not in absolute compliance, you might as well be sending handwritten post-it notes to the agencies you're targeting. Jeremy Nussbaum, Shirley's guest in this important discussion, is an expert in this mysterious, highly structured, nuanced endeavor, and his company, Luminary Consulting Group, has assisted hundreds of clients produce winning proposals for federal contracts. Today's discussion is packed with humorous stories and great information for contractors of all sizes and in all sectors, but it's especially critical for those who wish to grow their business in this very challenging marketplace. And now here's your host, Shirley Collier, with her guest, Jeremy Nussbaum. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. Shirley here. My special guest today is Jeremy Nussbaum. Jeremy is the founder and principal consultant of Luminary Consulting Group and has over 18 years of successful management and business development experience in government and industry. He has led capture and proposal efforts for multiple contracts with various U.S. federal civilian and DOD agencies for over 100 federal contractors, ranging from Fortune 50 companies to emerging small businesses. His efforts have contributed to over $3 billion of recognized client revenue and the award of GWACs, IDIQs, and BPAs with a combined ceiling value of over $120 billion. Welcome, Jeremy. Hey, thank you, Shirley. It's a pleasure to be here. In our previous podcast, we talked about the best capture processes. The next step, of course, is to actually write a winning proposal. So how do you write a proposal that is going to win a contract? That's a great question. And if if there was a one-sentence answer, then everyone would win all the time, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So we'll we'll focus on some of the key areas here. Uh, First and foremost is compliance. Right, your bid has to be compliant or you can't win. It's a binary thing, yes or no. The contracting officers in a lot of these large procurements will go through and they'll look for, did they follow all of the instructions? And those instructions, even if they seem minute, are just as important, right? Did you get the right font size? Did you have the right size margins? And just one example on, on the uh, DISA Encore contract, Encore 3, just recently this past year, they kicked out dozens of companies for exactly that. They didn't follow the right formatting. Oh, and you know, that is so frustrating to inexperienced federal contractors 
you know, I've heard some of them say, you know, I can have the cure for cancer, but if I didn't put it into a one-inch margin sheet, <laughs> then the federal government will never even read it. Uh, unfortunately, that's probably true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a second thing on compliance, just because it's in the proposal doesn't mean they'll actually find it. Uh, so it needs to be organized correctly. And when I say correctly, I mean in a way that the government's expecting following the structure that they put forth in the instructions uh, and then phrased in a way that they're expecting as well. So, for example, you're talking about the cure for cancer. So if they put something out saying, we want to find a drug that defeats cancer, and you said, we have a drug that cures cancer, you might not get score for that, right, because you didn't use the keyword that they used. And as arbitrary as that sounds, sometimes they're doing keyword searches or they're using software that will help them find relevant answers to things rather than actually reading your document cover to cover and thinking. Um, so, and again, I don't want to sound uh, too derogatory because I know lots of government contracting officers who do a great job and really do care about the end result. But at the end of the day, if they're getting hundreds of proposals, they have to fly through these evaluations and they do the best they can. So it's, it's important to help make their job easy. Yes. So that's proposal compliance. Uh, second part of its proposal evaluation score, uh, they have to evaluate these in accordance with you know, what's often called Section M. That's the evaluation criteria uh, in the RFP. And they are not allowed to evaluate something that's not in those evaluation criteria. So, for example, um, a lot of companies will focus on driving home their wind themes and talk about how wonderful their company is and how, how great they are at certain factors or how they have the very best people. Whatever it is uh, that they know are their strengths or sometimes even areas where they're better than their competitors, at the end of the day, those only matter if they're mapped to the evaluation criteria in the RFP itself. Because the government can, again, they can only evaluate based on those. Uh, so if you address something that's not listed in those eval criteria, they can't score it. Even if they like you and they like the answer that you wrote, they can't give you bonus points for that, uh, the way that the government evaluation process works. Yeah. So I've seen even large SIs sometimes waste valuable space demonstrating potentially extraneous information along those lines. So if you want to focus on what's in the eval criteria, make sure that it's clearly mapped um, to the content that you have in every section and that your messaging is very clear, that your response is comprehensive, and that it meets the defined standard for the highest score. And they usually define that, again, right there in that evaluation criteria section of the RFP. When you do that, you can maximize those scores. If you don't do that, you won't. It's, it's pretty straightforward. And, you know, all this sounds very logical, but it is so hard in execution. Yeah, there's a lot of pitfalls, you know, that we see, and, and I could go into examples all day long, I'm sure. But, you know, sometimes the instructions and the eval criteria don't match up. So that's, that's where you really want to have an experienced proposal manager that knows what to do. Um, sometimes the statement of work isn't even addressed in the instructions or the eval criteria. So what do you do then, <laughs> right? If, if they're not even asking you how you're going to perform on the contract, what do you write about in your proposal? Uh, and there, there are good answers to those questions, but, again, it, it varies on every single RFP. So let's talk about pricing strategy. This is an area that most companies really struggle with. So what is the most effective pricing strategy? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really funny question. Sorry, it, I know it's not a comedy question, <laughs> but it's funny to me because um, there is no one answer to that, right? It really depends on what the, uh, the RFP looks like, what the competitive environment looks like, what type of contract it is. So, you know, sometimes you actually can be too low, uh, on your price. Sometimes the government is awarding on what they call LPTA, right, the lowest price technically acceptable. And I've seen an example, you know, 
with a multi-billion dollar company bidding on work where they, they had good experience with this customer. They had, it was an LPTA cybersecurity task order, um, you know, worth more than $10 million. And they had great key personnel. Um, so they sent in all the resumes. Their proposal was fully compliant. And they, they lost because their price was too low even though it was LPTA and they had an excellent proposal <laughs> because the customer was worried about performance risk. Yes. Uh, they were worried that if they priced it that low, they wouldn't actually be able to perform uh, yep. post-award. So they ended up giving it to a competitor that was priced more than 10% higher uh, wow. with equivalent evaluation scores. So again, making sure your price strategy isn't just how low can you go. It's, it's actually looking at the overall environment and what will it take to win. What I have heard government people say is that they're looking for realistic pricing also. And sometimes if the price is too low, it shows a certain naivete on the part of the contractor. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's really important to understand your customer. And again, know those evaluation criteria, know your competition. And then, you know, when in doubt, uh, or if it's a must-win opportunity, enlist the help of a pricing professional. Right? There are some really good consultants out there that know um, price strategy. Illuminary Consulting Group, for example, has helped dozens of federal contractors ranging from small businesses all the way to multi-billion dollar systems integrators with everything from pricing documentation to cost compliance to uh, pricing strategy or competitive analysis. And there are several firms out there where all they do is price to win, uh, right? They, they don't even touch your strategy or your price volume itself. They just look at the competitive side. Uh, so again, if it's a must-win opportunity, you want to bring in some experts. Yes, I would agree with that. It's definitely an art and a science. Absolutely. Jeremy, what are the most common mistakes that you have seen that are made by small businesses in writing proposals? Uh, the good news and the bad news is that I've seen hundreds of mistakes made by small businesses in proposals. Uh, and there are wide ranges of mistakes that they make. I'll focus on some of the most common, uh, especially most common that we see by small businesses uh, and those include, especially if someone's relatively new to federal, is writing their proposal as if it's a marketing brochure or a website or a commercial proposal. And there's a whole different world in federal contracting, again, where you have to follow the instructions. You have these evaluation criteria to map to. Um, if you're in a commercial proposal, you can write a really compelling narrative and win a contract that way. Yes. And that's unfortunately not the case in the federal market. Having a coherent narrative flowing from cover to cover is not the goal in a federal proposal. Instead, you know, you want to make sure, again, that you, you really do organize it in a way that the government is looking for so they can find the content they need to evaluate you correctly. Another mistake we see is companies focusing on their strengths or what the customer wants. And I put wants in, you know, in quotes, like, these are my air quotes here, yes. uh, because sometimes people think they really know what the customer wants. If, especially if they're an incumbent, you know, we call this incumbentitis, where they, they know the environment so well that they write to that instead of what's in the RFP. And again, the government can't evaluate it if it's not in the solicitation. So you want to make sure that you focus on what actually can be evaluated. Same thing, too. I've seen both large and small companies really focus on their competitors, not just when they're doing their capture work, but actually in their proposal document itself. And I think that's a mistake. Um, if you overly ghost your competitors, you know, you, especially if you're explicitly mentioning them by name in your proposal, that does not add to the value of your proposal, and it oftentimes will actually weaken your proposal uh, in the eyes of the customer. Yes. So you know, things you can do instead, uh, you can talk about you know, the fact that you've got relative strengths that you know your competitors don't have, uh, 
Um, and that, that's a good way to ghost them correctly. You're not saying, unlike those other companies out there that don't do this, we have the, right, that sentence doesn't help you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Just do the second half of the sentence, right? Yes. We are great at these following things that you know are important to the customer. And then they'll, they'll see that those same things aren't present in your competitor's proposals. They'll and draw they'll, that relationship. <laughs> that's exactly right. They'll know that. Jeremy, we're going to pause here for a moment to allow our moderators to catch their breath. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion. Folks, we'll be back shortly, so stay tuned. Today's presentation is brought to you by Scale to Market, and your host is Shirley Collier. Scale to Market helps businesses thrive and grow in the federal marketplace by developing and executing customized, data-driven business development playbooks. Visit our website at www.scaletomarket.com, that's scale2market.com, to find more podcasts, webinars, and other informative resources. Now back to our podcast, an interview with Jeremy Nussbaum, President and CEO of Luminary Consulting Group, on the keys to writing and submitting winning proposals. Welcome back. Jeremy, before the break, you were listing some of the common mistakes made by contractors in the proposal writing process. Are there others you'd like to share? Other mistakes we see people make on a a pretty regular basis, um, missing the little things that make the difference between compliance and non-compliance. We talked about earlier with fonts or margins or things like that. Also, failing to submit on time. I find that hard to believe. It is. One of my favorite, uh, right, I'm, I'm a contracting nerd here, federal contracting nerd, <laughs> certified, right? <laughs> so I, I like following case law and things like this, and there are some fascinating cases out there, at least to me, <laughs> about companies that have just failed to submit on time, whether it's electronic submission, um, where they clicked send on time on their computer, but the time wasn't the same as the time on the server or the time on the government side, so it was counted as not timely, um, or other cases where they showed up to the gates of a, a military base with their proposal prior to the proposal deadline. But by the time they got through security and got to where the delivery point was, it was past the deadline. Yep. That one went all the way through the federal courts. It was found to be not submitted in a timely fashion. So you want to make sure that you are not waiting down to the last second to submit your proposal. Get that thing in, make sure it's submitted on time, and that you have some sort of re- receipt for the submission, yes. whether it's an in-person or an electronic submission. Um, other, other really common mistakes um, pertain to the Q&A phase, right? So after the RFP is out, but before you submit, a lot of times the government will allow for questions and answers. You do not want to write open-ended questions. You know, for example, we've seen ridiculous questions where instead of asking something specific to the RFP, or even if it's specific to the RFP, without really focusing on where you want them to go, um, if you ask an open-ended question, the government can answer it however they want, and that leaves you potentially in a way that's going to hurt you in a competitive position. So you always want to ask your questions in a way that helps shape it towards the answer that you want, or in a way that even if they say no to your question, it also doesn't tank you. You don't want either a yes or no to be something that completely derails your proposal. If that's the case, you're better off not even asking the question in the first place. Hmm. We've also seen people ask questions with clearly identifiable information in their question, so the government is good about, re- usually good about redacting out names of uh, contractors if you submit that, which you really should not in the first place. But sometimes people, even if they don't include their name, 
they'll say things that really clearly identify who they are. Like, as the incumbent, we have the following concerns. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, don't, okay. Don't do that. <laughs> right? Or, you know, as the only small business who has ever accomplished the following, and we have these concerns, please don't do that because yeah. you don't want your competitors to know what your concerns are. Um, it just helps them shape their proposal better. Yeah, you always want to avoid any personally identifiable or company identifiable information if you can. Yes. And then the, the last one that, that I have from more of the proposal writing standpoint is, you know, it, it's a reality that you'll probably have more than one person writing your proposal content. So you'll have to combine that content into a single document before submission, but you don't want it to look like that, right? Like you took six different people's work and you pasted it all into one document without editing it at all. You've got one person that's writing in passive voice, another person writing in active voice. Yes. You've got someone that always puts periods at the end of their bullets and another person that doesn't. And yes. things like that, um, some of them are relatively minor. Some of them are, are more major, like you know, using different nomenclature for the same exact type of technology or the, the same customer uh, or for your own company. Right? So you want to make sure you have consistent terminology throughout. Ideally, you have an editor or a proposal writer or something like that that will rewrite the whole thing for one voice um, prior to submission. And I would imagine that a good proposal manager would set forth those rules ahead of time for all the authors of the document so that it reduces at least some of the editing. Exactly. And if you have a really good proposal manager, whether it's internal or from a consulting company like Luminary Consulting Group, uh, they will be absolutely giving good guidance to the writers. And they'll be checking in iteratively throughout the process to make sure that it's shaping up the right way. But there have been plenty of salvage efforts that we've done as well, you know, where companies have come to us and they've, you know, they've gotten through their red team review and they know they have two weeks before submission and they need help. Um, and good consulting companies can help with that too to get things back on track. Yeah. So we've been talking about the mistakes that small businesses make. Um, let's talk about effective strategies. Have you seen effective strategies that are used by large systems integrators that can be easily adopted by small businesses? Absolutely. There are a number of strategies and processes out there that large businesses and, and systems integrators use, some of which don't make sense for a small business, right? They just don't scale. They cost too much. Uh, on the other hand, there are also a good amount that do make sense. They do scale well, and they honestly should be implemented by every small business federal contractor. Uh, some of those you know, really effective strategies include, first and foremost, having a competent and qualified proposal manager leading your proposal effort whether that's an internal resource or a consulting resource, is less important as making sure you've got someone who knows what they're doing. Uh, I have worked with probably more than uh, 100 proposal managers in my career, and you can usually tell within the first meeting if someone's really good or not, and you can definitely tell by the first color review. Um, <laughs> yes. And, you know, it's, it's really important that if you see that your proposal is not on track, you either no-bid or you figure out how you're going to get it on track. And using the same resource to do the same thing right. is not going to help you get there. Right. So, uh, you know, they say the definition of insanity is repeating the same exact thing, expecting a different outcome. Right. <laughs> so you want to make sure that you, uh, you either cut bait on your bid or you switch resources. Uh, whether, again, whether that's internal or external, if you've got a bad consultant, cut your consultant and move on to either a, an internal or a different external resource. Uh, if you've got someone internally that's, you know, even if they're a great person, I'm not saying these are bad people, right? They might be a great person, but maybe this isn't the right skill set for them. Or maybe it is the right skill set, but they're just over, overwhelmed with volume and workload, so they can't really give it the focus they need. 
making sure that you make good decisions on that workload and that, um, that proposal manager resource. Again, that's probably the most important aspect of it. Almost just as important is the same thing for your SMEs, right, your subject matter experts, and your writers, uh, the people generating the proposal content. Uh, you want to make sure that they have the bandwidth to really focus on this, because even if you have an excellent proposal manager, they can't really pull a rabbit out of a hat without the content. Along the similar lines you, you mentioned earlier, <laughs> I think you, you brought this point up, which is great, that you want to make sure your proposal manager gives good instructions to the authors including compliance requirements and page count guidance before they even start creating any content. Uh, you also want to make sure you have a good proposal outline before you start creating any content. And when I say good, I mean that it's not just compliant, but that you've already had a compliance review, right? It's not just one person's view on compliance. So I, it's almost like a mini-color review of just the outline itself that it's what we recommend doing so that before anyone even puts pen to paper, you know that the structure is locked in. If you get down the road and you have a pink team review or a red team review and people look at it and they say, oh, my gosh, I can't believe we missed this, sometimes you do have to tweak that. But you're, you're still a thousand times better off starting out with that reviewed compliant outline and structure than you are trying to figure that out halfway down the road. Yep. Also, effective color reviews are very important in the proposal process. You want to make sure, when I say color reviews, again, we're talking about things like pink team review, red team review, gold team review, which are usually the three major reviews after your RFP comes out and while you're doing your proposal development prior to bid submission. So every, every company and every you know, process has a slightly different take on it. Um, you know, Shipley has their own definitions of what those things mean. Um, but at, at the end of the day, making sure that you know what it means is most important, right? What does your yes. team think that means? Is everyone on the same page or not? If your proposal manager is doing their job correctly, then they will communicate very clearly to everyone participating in those color reviews exactly what's expected of them during the review, what the content should look like prior to the review, what the goal of the reviewers is. And then after they receive feedback from the reviewers, they'll actually review that and consolidate it before they have the debrief. And that's a really important step that a lot of companies miss. You don't want your debrief to have you know, eight different documents all with track changes on them and you're trying to flip back and forth between them. Oh, yeah, that's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> really, I've been there. <laughs> it's not a good use of time for anyone in the room, especially because a lot of times that feedback conflicts. Right, one person says to delete a paragraph, another person revises the paragraph, and a third person wants to expand on that paragraph. <laughs> like, if you're trying to hash that out in a boardroom um, with a group, a whole team of people, that is not an effective use of any of their time, and yes. it's costing the company a lot of money. Right, if you think about those people's hourly equivalent costs, and you have eight people or ten people sitting around a table talking about that. That's just not an effective use of time. Yes. Another one, uh, another mistake that we see pretty commonly is uh, failing to match win themes to eval criteria. So, again, we talked about the evaluation criteria are really paramount uh, in your proposal, uh, the most important thing other than compliance, right? Companies will sometimes write win themes in a vacuum. And what I mean by that is they will come up with their win themes based on uh, the work that's, that's to be done and based on their understanding of the customer environment, based on their understanding of their own strengths, and based on the understanding of their competitors' weaknesses. And those are all really important factors in wind themes. But if they don't map to the eval criteria, the government can't evaluate them. Yep. And the very last one we had here is making sure that everything in the final proposal is compliant and submitted on time. Again, we talked about that as you know, earlier on in the mistakes category, but this is a really important, effective strategy that large businesses use that small businesses can do too. There's absolutely no reason not to do your final compliance check and submit on time. Yep. 
Absolutely. So, Jeremy, I know I've heard you talk uh, previously about a proposal repository. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a number of ways to do it. Some, you know, some companies have actually developed software that does exactly that. Um, there are other tools that you can use, um, database tools. You could just have a SharePoint site. Uh, you could even just have a file structure on your local shared drive. Um, you know, it, the method that you use is less important than the content itself in the organization. So you want to make sure that you keep track of um, all of the proposals that have ever been submitted by your organization, as well as uh, content that could go into those. Like we talked about earlier, resumes of key personnel, certifications that the company has, a list of certifications that your individual uh, potential billable personnel have, uh, you know, things like PMP or uh, technical certifications that they might have for engineers, something like that. All of that needs to be in a readily accessible, easily searchable format. And then that way, your proposal developers can draw from that content and do their job much more effectively. Oh, yeah, much more efficiently, too. Absolutely. Well, and it's not just that they can do their job more efficiently. It's they're not dragging other resources from the company into the proposal unnecessarily every time you have a bid. Right? I mean, I've, I've worked with companies where their directors of HR get sucked into every single proposal that goes out the door because they're trying to do searches of resumes and, search, and checking their existing uh, personnel records for all of these criteria every single time they do a proposal. Yeah, <laughs> so, <my> gosh. <laughs> yeah. um, so, Jeremy, where can contractors go to learn more about effective proposal writing? Uh, there are a number of great resources in this area, uh, including organizations like APMP. That's the Association of Proposal Management Professionals. Uh, they have chapters all over the country, including national capital area. Uh, additionally, Luminary Consulting Group actually offers training courses on this exact topic. Uh, we've trained over 1,000 professionals in the federal market and would be glad to help any of your clients. So, Jeremy, this is a lot to absorb. <laughs> How would you summarize your advice on the most effective proposal management and writing practices? First and foremost, start with compliance. Then focus on maximizing evaluation scores, and then end with making sure that everything is compliant and submitted on time. Right? It's kind of like your compliance sandwich. Right? <laughs> you start and end with that, and in between you focus on your content that maximizes the eval scores. And when in doubt, or if it's a must-win opportunity, absolutely you should engage a proposal manager uh, from one of the reputable consulting companies in this area, such as Luminary Consulting Group. Jeremy, thank you so much today for your wisdom, your advice. This is so essential to success in federal contracting. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate being able to join you and help out any of your clients. So folks, if you would like to learn more about proposal writing, you can get in touch with Jeremy. His email address is jeremy at luminarycg.com. That's L-U-M-I-N-A-R-Y-C-G for consulting group.com. Or visit his website at luminaryconsultinggroup.com. This is Shirley Collier signing off for now. Thank you for joining us today. For more information on how to grow your business in the federal marketplace, visit our website at scaletomarket.com. That's scale2market.com. And subscribe to the Growth Masters Federal channel on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our webinar series on the Scale to Market website. Join us again soon for another informative Growth Masters Federal podcast, and have a great day. Thank you.